Thank you. Uh, I'm wondering if you've shared this very formative childhood experience with me. Well, not with me, since when I was a child you went around. Um, but anyway, did you have this experience? There you were in the kitchen and the plastic cups were lined up on the bench, several of them, because, I don't know, you're there with your siblings or your friends or something, and the apple and black currant juice gets poured out from the extra large three litre no sugar added container and it gets poured out and you can tell straight away just because you have that uncanny and absolutely accurate sense of which cup has slightly less juice or slightly more juice than any others, you go, oh my goodness, that's got less juice. But because there were bigger children around who just have, you know, they have the same uncanny ability that you had to determine, which is the lesser cup, but they have more muscles than you and they can push you out of the way, they get all the big cups and suddenly you are left with the little cup. With the little juice. I mean, there's a whole three millilitres less of juice that you know. My four-year-old daughter, who can barely write her own name, well, she gets the first letter right anyway, but she has this ability to determine with absolute precision which has the less juice. And suddenly you experience this terrible injustice in your life. <laughs> and, and so it wells up inside you, this sense of injustice, and you let forth with... I have suffered an injustice here! <laughs> or words to that effect as befits your age at the time. You have that sort of experience? We are hardwired for justice. Don't you reckon that's true? We're just hardwired for justice. I mean, and that seriously is an absolute <coughs> triviality, that example. But you see our hardwiring for justice in the trivial sometimes, let alone in the truly troubling. Maybe you have experienced violence. Maybe you've experienced slander directed at you or about you. Maybe you've experienced abuse. Maybe you've experienced vindictiveness. These are not trivial. These are truly troubling. And my guess is, when you experience that, that same sense of injustice wells up within you, doesn't it? This is not right. This should not happen. And, and I hope that when you see it happening in other people, that same sense of injustice arises within you. When it happens to someone you love, someone in your family, or I hope it even happens when you see it happening in the world around us. We're hardwired for justice. But the problem is that our world is a very unjust place. I just mean that as a statement of fact. A lot of injustice happens. And if I don't mean it fatalistically, well, you've just got to suck it up, princess, because that's how it is in the world. I don't mean it like that. I mean there just is a lot of injustice. And yet we have this sense of how terrible it is that, that unjust things happen to ourselves and others. And so it leaves you with the question, is there really any hope for justice in this world? Is there a future for justice? Well, the section of the book of Romans that we're looking at today says to us all, very clearly, from God himself, through his word, there is a future for justice. A certain future. Not just a mere vain hope 
for justice. No, there is a certain future for justice. And the answer lies not with ourselves. The reason it's certain is because justice lies with the one true living God. That's what we're going to explore today. Hope to sort of unpack that, show you from the scriptures that this is indeed God's word to us. His word of comfort and yet a challenge to us. So if you've got your Bible, it'd be really helpful to open it up or look on with the person next to you. Uh, Romans chapter... We're going to go from Romans chapter 1, around verse 18, all the way through to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. That's the plan. And uh, you've got a bit of an outline there. You might like to follow along. The first thing I want to point out is that God's own personal righteousness is a big theme for Paul right throughout this letter. So if you've got your Bible there, open it up, have a look at Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. These were sort of verses we finished on very quickly last week. But in these verses, Paul introduces his theme for the whole letter. He says there, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. Remember the Gospel last week, God's great, grand public announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord. That announcement. He says, I'm not ashamed of this Gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In this Gospel, this news about Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ and Lord, is revealed God's righteousness, the righteousness of God. If you've got an old NIV, uh, yours probably says, a righteousness from God has been revealed. Uh, that's one possible way of rendering it, I guess, but, but just literally the way it's written in the original is just the righteousness of God. And that's a little bit ambiguous in and of itself. That is, because the word of can mean all sorts of things. Does it mean God's own personal righteousness or does it mean a righteousness that's come from him or a righteousness about him? What does it mean? Well, I'm just going to stick to sort of the way most English translations take it, and they leave the ambiguity in there. The only way you can resolve that ambiguity is by looking at the context. And I'm going to suggest to you, actually, the best way to understand it is that what Paul's talking about here is God's own personal righteousness. The reason I want to suggest that to you is because later on in the letter, Paul very clearly talks about God's own personal righteousness. He defends the fact that, yes, God really is righteous in himself. Chapter 3 you can see it, and chapter 9 to chapter 11 you can see it. This is a big theme in the letter. So I think Paul's telling us of that right here at the beginning. The, the, the theme he wants to pick right throughout this letter is that God himself really is righteous. Now what does this mean, that God is righteous? Well, have a look, as I said, in the context. Just look at the verse before and the verse after, give a bit of an idea. Verse 16. Not ashamed of the Gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So, something about salvation is involved in God's righteousness. Look at the verse afterwards, verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness of human beings. Something about God's wrath is to do with his righteousness. It's, he's not making a, a different point when he gets to verse 18. He's, he's still talking about the righteousness of God. The reason I say that is, if you jump ahead to uh, chapter 2, verse Five, he talks about the day of God's righteous judgment, which just means God's righteous sort of assessment, linked with the pouring out of his wrath. He connects these ideas. Righteousness has to do with God's saving, and it has to do with God's wrath, his condemning of sin. That's just from the context, but can we make more sense of that? Well, I think we can. If we take Hugh, who introduced our meeting today, 
And we said, Hugh is righteous. What would we mean by that? Well, it sort of implies, doesn't it, if Hugh is righteous, that Hugh's standing against some sort of unseen measuring rod. For him to be decreed to be righteous means that you've measured him against some sort of standard and you can determine against us that he indeed has acted rightly. Now, for Hugh, we can construct all sorts of measures of righteousness. We'll say the fashion measure of righteousness. Is he righteous? Tragically, no. <laughs> but who am I to point the stick? Anyway, um, but we could say, oh, is he righteous against God's standard? Is he righteous? I mean, there's all... If we say that God himself is righteous, what's the standard you're going to put next to God? That's a bit tricky. I want to suggest to you that, the, that because the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, talk about God being righteous, what they mean by that is that God acts in such a way to fulfil all of his good intentions for his creation. That's what I think the Bible means when it talks about God being righteous. That God acts in such a way that he fulfils all of his good intentions for his creation. The reason I say that is um, when you trace it back through the Old Testament, you can see in places like Isaiah 45, would be a good place to go and look up later, you can see that when God talks about himself being righteous, he talks about it often in terms of the whole of creation. He talks about it often in terms of his will and purpose, him achieving his purpose for his creation. He talks about it often in terms of him being faithful to the covenant he's established, with his chosen people, which is the means by which he's going to fulfil his intentions for all of his creation. When we say God is righteous, we mean God is faithful to his intentions, to his creation. He's going to, he's going to bring about his good intentions for all of his creation. And he's going to do it, how? Well, he's going to do it through condemning sin, that which destroys his creation. Through condemning sin and through saving, restoring his people. That's how he's going to do it. So that's the big idea of God's righteousness. That's how come it involves both saving and condemning of sin. And it explains why Paul talks about some of the things he talks about later in the letter. When you get to chapter 5, why is Paul suddenly talking about Adam and, and where sin came from? Well, because that is what is destroying God's creation. And God is righteous. He won't allow that to continue. He's actually fixing that up through Jesus Christ. When he gets to chapter 8, he's talking about God is going to renew all of creation. Why is he suddenly talking about that? Well, because that is because God's righteous. He's not going to let his creation be destroyed by sin and wickedness. No, he's going to bring about the fulfilment of all his good intentions. It fits under this heading of God's own personal righteousness. Now, if you come to my house, and um, it's, it's pretty tidy, my house, but if you look very carefully around my house, you will find all sorts of unfinished products, unfinished projects of mine. Uh, I was thinking about this, I just thought, yep, over the summer, just gone, I had this plan I was going to make with my own hands, out of wood and metal. I was going to make bookshelves, like a, a bookshelf, to hang over the end of each of our hundreds of children's beds. Right? Or five children. But, you know, I was going to make, this was going to be my summer project. I made detailed drawings measured things, worked out how much I would need and never finished it. Mm, oh, yeah, an unfinished creation of mine. Uh, but then I thought a bit more carefully, I thought, oh, actually in the box next to my desk at home I've got a whole bunch of um, pictures 
that I bought 14 years ago in Nepal that are still rolled up and I've never framed and hung up. There's an unfinished creation of mine. And I thought, oh, worse than that, next to that is a big poster, like a seriously big poster that's sort of a a massive, complicated, giant colouring in make this amazing picture poster like when I was in primary school that I had sort of half finished that I've had unfinished for 30 years. My house is littered with unfulfilled projects. You know why it's good news that God is righteous? Because it means that justice will get done in this world. This creation will not be left as an unfinished project. God's intentions and plans, because he is righteous, he will see them all the way through to completion. And so you know what? That means that you and I can actually have hope in this world. Because we live in this unjust world, we experience injustice, we see injustice, we care about it, we get that sense of injustice welling up inside us, and you know what? There is hope. But the hope at the end of the day doesn't lie with human beings. I mean, we need good lawyers, we need good judges, we need good magistrates, we need good human rights activists, and I hope some of you will will take that task on and do that task for God's glory in the name of his son. But, ultimately, final, real, infallible justice will only be done by the hand of God. But we can be sure that it will be. And that is really good news. And it's connected to this gospel of Jesus Christ because what you learn in chapter 2 is, through chapter 2 verse 16, is that Jesus is the final judge. This Jesus who's been made Lord in Christ, he is the final judge. That's why this gospel is good news that justice will be done. Now, when will it be done? I'm roughly up to about point two on the outline if you care about such things. When will this happen? When will justice finally be done? Well, what we're told in chapter 2, verse 5, is that there is a day coming. A day of God's righteous judgment. Judgment in the sense of just assessment. It's, a, it's, a, it's not implying condemnation or approval, it's just meaning assessment. There's a day of God's righteous assessment coming. And you know, like a judge... A judge doesn't always condemn. A judge sometimes approves and acquits, and the judge sometimes condemns and punishes. And so there is a day when God will judge through Jesus Christ. A great day coming. What's, what's going to happen on that day? What will the nature of God's judgment be? Well, you can see it there if you've got your Bible open. Chapter 2, verse 6. Here's the principle that God will apply on that particular day. God will repay everyone according to what they've done. God will repay everyone according to what they have done, according to the life you've lived, according to your deeds. That's what God will do. And then he plays that out for you and shows you how, well, it's going to go one way or the other. And I've set this out on your outline there because he, he talks about two groups of people, uh, and he talks about group one, then he talks about group two, and then he talks about group two, and he talks about group one. Sort of, sort of goes in and out, right? Identifying the two groups of people. So one group of people is there in verse seven and verse ten. The other group of people is there in verse eight and verse nine. I'll read it out to you. Verse seven. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour, and immortality, he will give eternal life. 
But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show partiality. So here's the principle. God's going to assess us through Jesus Christ according to how we've lived. And it's going to be two groups of people. Those who by persistently doing good seek for glory and honour and immortality, they'll get eternal life and peace. And those who have rejected the truth have been self-seeking, engaged in wickedness, there'll be wrath and fury. Very two clear, clear groups of people. Now I need to just stop and think a bit about how, how then should I read this? How should I understand this? And unashamedly here I'm going to need you to do some work in the text. Because I think this passage is, is sometimes, maybe often, misrepresented. Often you hear people talk about Romans chapter 2 in this way. What Paul's doing is Paul is trying to, and they're right on this point, is proclaim the great gospel of Jesus. So the way he does that is in chapter 2, he tells you about the theoretical way that you can get eternal life. The theoretical way that you can get eternal life is by persistently doing good. Live a perfect life. And then you would get eternal life. You would have peace with God. This is theoretically possible. However, the argument goes, it's obviously not practical. It's obviously not actually possible because you can't live a perfect life. So he set up this theoretical possibility only to then say, chapter 3, verse 10, but no one is righteous, no, not even one, no one seeks God, so clearly you all fail. You're all on the, oh, you're in the wrath side of the division. So that's a big problem. But praise be to God, chapter 3, verse 21 and onwards, Jesus is your salvation. That's the way that it's often explained. There's lots of truth in that, however, I don't think that's actually the way to read chapter 2. I actually think that Paul is saying in chapter 2, this is how God will judge on that final day, and Paul actually expects there to be real people in both categories. It's not an empty category. It's not a theoretical possibility. He's saying, no, this is the real deal and you're going to be in one group or the other and I expect there'll be people in both. Not just an empty possibility. Why do I say that? Well, this is where we need to do some work on the text. Have a look at you've got the Bible there. Just want to point to you, first of all, to chapter, 13, uh, chapter 2, sorry, verses 13 and 15. 13 to 15. He says here, It is not those who hear the law, who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And then he says, Indeed, Gentiles who do not have the law, when they by nature do the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, that's the key phrase, their consciences also bearing witness and so on. He's talking here about Gentiles who don't have the Old Testament law, but who... Do what the law requires. In fact, he says, they have the, what the law requires written on their hearts. And if you know your Old Testament, that is a very key phrase. Written on your heart. That's actually a new covenant promise. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. That God one day is going to write his law on the hearts of his people, such that they live for him. And what he's saying here, he's talking not about a theoretical possibility. He's talking about Gentile Christians. People who have faith in Jesus who are part of the new covenant people of God, who have the spirit of God in them, that they do what the law requires. 
In fact, a bit later, if you jump down further in the chapter, down to, uh, uh, down to verse 29, you'll see he actually talks about, this time I'm talking about Jews, he talks about those who actually have the Spirit. That links into this whole New Covenant idea. What's more, uh, what, what about uh, what he says in verses 6 and 7, or sorry, 7, 8, 9 and 10, the words he uses, things like people who persistently do good or seek for glory, uh, he will give eternal life, those who, uh, he will grant them peace. All those words that I just identified, all those words are used throughout the rest of this letter in different places of Christians. It said Christians are those who are seeking to do good. Christians are those who will share in Christ's glory. Christians are those who, through Jesus Christ, have eternal life, who now have peace with God. All those words are actually used later in the same letter about Christians. That's why it says to me here that actually Paul's not talking about a theoretical possibility. He's talking about an actual reality. People who are in Christ are those who do good, who fulfil the requirements of the law. Well, how, how do I get that Christians, you, if you're a Christian, how do you fulfil the requirements of the law? Well, you've got to go to two different verses. You've got to go to Romans chapter 8, verse 4, and Romans chapter 13, I think, verse 9. Uh, put those two verses together and you get the answer. That is, in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, we're told that those who walk according to the Spirit have the righteous requirements of the law fully met in them. So if you're a person who has the Spirit of God in you because you have faith in Jesus, then as you walk by that Spirit, the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in you. But what are the righteous requirements of the law? Well, chapter 13, verse 9, love, we're told, is the fulfilling of the law. So as you, by faith in Christ, have the blessing of the Spirit of God in you, as you walk by that Spirit through life, as you love other people, that is the fulfilling of the law in your own life. Praise be to God through the Spirit. And so these are the people who are seeking to do good. So I think this is not an empty category. This is him saying, this is how it's going to go on that final day. There will be a great division between people. Those who, through Jesus, by the Spirit, are seeking to do good, they'll be granted eternal life. But those who reject the truth are self-seeking. Tragically, terribly, there'll be wrath and fury because they've rejected the one true living God and what he's done for them in Christ. Now, why is this passage here in the Scriptures? Why is it here in chapter 2? Because God is giving us all a warning. Have a look at verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. That's how he leads into this. Paul says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance and patience? not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance, that by your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgement will be revealed. Um, you know how in New South Wales you know, there's different sorts of um, signs on the road that talk about speed cameras? There's one uh, little sign that says speed cameras used in New South Wales. Everyone sort of knows that, yeah, thank you, but there's no speed camera here. Like, they're just, they're randomly around and it's just, yeah, thank you. Yep. But then there's those other speed camera signs. The ones where there's three in a row, you know, the first one, speed cameras, used in New South Wales, big sign. The next one is heavy fines for loss of licence or something like that. And there's a, I can't even remember what they are, but everyone just knows that there's three 
And everyone knows that the camera comes after the third. Right? So you can just keep going, not that you do that, but until the third time. That's, we all know. This passage is like that. This is a clear, certain warning to all of us. There is a day of God's righteous assessment coming. Except you're not driving towards it. It's coming to you. And we know what the nature of God's righteous assessment will be on that day. By God's grace, do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, experience the blessing of His Spirit, and seek to live for Him? Yes, you don't live it perfectly, but you are on the narrow road that leads to life. Yes, you wander off the way time and time again, but you know what? You heed chapter 2, verse 4. You know that God's patience with you leads you to repentance. So you get back on track yet again. That is the path to life. And this is a warning to us, to heed it. And no one should think that they're exempt from this. No one. In fact, that's really what the rest of these chapters are about. I've really just focused in on chapter 2, but from chapter 1, 18, all the way through to chapter 3, 20, Paul is at pains to show, you know what, there is no one who is exempt from this. And he goes through three different categories of people, and they're there as sort of uh, points under heading number 3 on your outline. He talks about those who don't know God, those who actually reject God. That they're not without... They have no excuse... They are going to be held accountable for what they know. They too. It doesn't matter whether you've been to an EU meeting. It doesn't matter whether you've read the Bible. He says, there's no one actually who has an excuse here. Because God's revealed certain things about himself through the very creation. And that holds you accountable for how you've responded to that. And then he turns a finger, I guess, from those out there. And then he sort of focuses a bit on the Christians he's writing to. He says, "And, and you, if you point the finger at others, but actually do the same things yourself. I mean, they may even approve of wickedness. You condemn it, but you do it yourself. Well, you're not going to escape. And then he tightens it again and says, and if you come from a Jewish background, you think, well, I'm saved because I'm, a, I'm from a Jewish background, I've got the law, I'm you know, part of the chosen people of God. He says, yeah, but if you've got the law but you don't do the law, that's not going to help. God shows no partiality. There are no exemptions. The only solution is to be in Christ. To be in Christ. And it's worth just saying as I wrap up here, um, because this is pastorally really significant, is when Paul is going through those different groups, in chapter 1, there is a point where he talks particularly about homosexual sex. And I just want to make a few comments about this, because this is, again, I think, a, a real area where Christians have, have often um, made a meal of it, pastorally. So I just want to make a few comments here on what Paul says here. When you read chapter 1, verse 18 through to the end of the chapter, you'll see that Paul talks about homosexual sex as a symptom of rejection of God. But he doesn't say this is the only symptom, and he doesn't actually even particularly make it worse than any others. He, He just talks a bit more about it, but he actually has a whole list of symptoms of rejection of God, including hating your parents, including gossip, it's all manner of things. So we don't want to make homosexual sex as somehow a, a more heinous sin than anything else, because Paul doesn't do that here. At the same time, 
we need to be clear, what he's talking about is homosexual sex, not homosexual attraction. Those are different things. In fact, when we talk about homosexual attraction, we really need to also talk about heterosexual attraction because what Paul is condemning here is the engagement in homosexual sex. What we need to say to people who have homosexual attraction is the same thing we say to people who have heterosexual attraction. That is, outside of a male-female, lifelong sexual union, what the Bible calls marriage, where to live a chaste, celibate life, whether you're heterosexual or homosexual. So this is not condemning homosexual attraction, it's condemning homosexual sex, the same way in other places in the Bible it condemns heterosexual sex when, when sex is outside of that male-female lifelong sexual union called marriage. The other thing that's worth saying here is uh, that there is a danger, a real danger, that we pull back from what Paul has to say in this passage about homosexual sex. We must not do that. If we're serious about taking the Bible as it is, as the Word of God, then we need to not pull back from the fact that homosexual sex is outside of God's good intentions for us as people. In the same way that heterosexual sex outside of marriage is outside of God's good intentions for us as his people, as preachers. Another thing to say is that we must not become a community, if you call yourself a Christian, we must not become a, a community of people who follow Jesus who somehow make homosexual attraction something that can never be owned by anyone. I have friends who are committed Christians, following and loving Jesus, who have homosexual attraction, and you know what? It is very hard for them to be honest about that with other Christians, which is a tragedy, because they're trying to live a chaste, celibate lifestyle but get no support from Christian community because... The Christians go, homosexual attraction, that's... Well, I think they get it confused with homosexual sex. So we need to actually not be a community to do that. Because, you know, if we we become a community that makes it something that you're not allowed to talk about, then we become the people Paul condemns, who points the finger at others, yet breaks the law themselves, who does the very things that they condemn in other people. So let's not fall into that trap as a community of God's people. Okay, so we need to wrap up. Take home point. There is a sperm day where justice will be done. Praise God for that. Victims will be vindicated. Perpetrators will be brought to justice. And he's going to do it through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in light of that truth, then let's make sure that we don't despise the day of his patience and kindness to us. Let's make sure that we're living that repentant life getting back on track, following Jesus down that road to life, that we might experience the blessings of his spirit and forgiveness and eternal life. Thanks very much for being here. Look forward to seeing you in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Can you drop in your...